It's Muppeturgy. Hold on to your puppet holes for our discussion of the James Coco episode of The Muppet Show. <laughs> Who says I wasn't holding on already? <laughs> I'm never not. <laughs> All right, let me do the as written. No, no, we're using that. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm David Levy. We're so glad you're here. With me today are... <laughs> Somebody else go first. This is it. We're setting the tone. This is what we're mm. doing. I'm Adam Grossworth. <laughs> Christy Bauer. And I'm Michal Richardson. We are real tired, and I'm not even the jet-lagged one. This is just what this is going to be this week. It's going to be a great night. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. We have a correction. In the Alice Cooper episode, I said that the Muppets never said the word devil, but in fact, we played clips with the word devil, so thank you listeners for paying more attention to us than I do. We also have an addition. We were so busy yelling about misogyny and funky bass lines in the Raquel Welch episode. The two great tastes that taste great together. They do taste great together. Uh, <laughs> so do Muppet Holes. <laughs> That we failed to mention that 60 Minutes did a behind-the-scenes segment on The Muppet Show that was made during the production of the Raquel Welch episode. It is on YouTube, and you can find it on the show page for that episode of our podcast at MuppetTurgy.com. It is sexational. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 12 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of... May 2nd, 1978, and it aired in New York on October 9th, 1978. It was the fourth episode to air after Gene Stapleton and before Liberace. So that means we are back to the New York Times strike and our old friend, Ultimate70s.com, for the news. Dr. Peter Bourne, President Carter's one-time chief advisor on drug abuse, said... Quote, we can't enforce the drug laws that we have on the books now, so I don't think the interests of the American people would be served by having more stringent laws. End quote. Nice how things have changed. Russian defector Viktor Korchnoi says world chess champion Anatoly Karpov lost his second consecutive game Sunday by bad play. He could have had a draw, but he moved badly, and I won, Korchnoi said. He added... What a scene, what a joy, what a lonely sight And my game is a big sensation <laughs> That was really just for Christy. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, I, I was going to say, I, I don't know how you were able to, like, say the words Anatoly Karpov. I see them written, and I think, Anatoly Karpov. So, yeah. I had a, I had a the, trick. The, the joke had to be in there somewhere. So th- I appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, Dolly Parton was named the Country Music Association's Entertainer of the Year. Future Muppet Show guest star and Loretta Lynn's sister, Crystal Gale, was named Female Vocalist of the Year for the second straight year. And Jacques Brel has died at age 49. Aww, no longer alive or living in Paris. <laughs> Not well at all. Not well. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Pour one out. We have the results of a poll we discussed on an earlier episode, a weird poll. It turns out that California voters could scarcely care less whether Governor Jerry Brown marries singer Linda Ronstadt. When asked if their marriage would make people think more or less highly of the governor, the answers were 88% no difference, 6% more highly, 4% less highly, 2% unsure. So those are convincible. Yes. And President Carter said that of all of Disney World's offerings, he wanted to see Fantasyland because, according to the Wall Street Journal, it is the source of inspiration for my economic advisors. Ah, ah. I, so, <laughs> ultimate doesn't have links. So it's unclear if he was, like, at Disney World, if he was just making a joke. I, I don't understand, but, you know. Do they have citations? Did they make this up? They say it's from the Chicago Tribune, but there's no link to the article. So mm-hmm. it, it's just... It's just that. But, you know, we're us, so I had to share. On the Cashbox Pop Charts, Kiss You All Over by Exile is number one. Still a banger. Summer Nights uh, is number three. Hopelessly Devoted to You is number six. Still And You Needed Me by Future Marvel Show guest star Anne Murray is number eight. 
on television on CBS following the Muppet Show, WKRP in Cincinnati, an hour-long episode of MASH entitled Our Finest Hour, and the aforementioned 12th Annual Country Music Association Awards. On ABC, football as usual. And on NBC, Little House on the Prairie is There's No Place Like Home Part 1, which we discussed at length on the Liberace episode when Aww. There's No Place Like Home Part 2 aired. That's one where they like basically reboot the series by burning down the town where they all live? Yeah, like they reboot it back to what it had been after half a season or a quarter of a season of being in the other place. It, yeah. Yes. Yes, they blow up the, the saloon. And, and laugh about it and laugh it's yeah it's real weird so part one is where they all decide that they're unhappy uh and then part two is where they blush it up great uh that was followed by the tv movie secrets of three hungry wives when a millionaire playboy is murdered suspicion falls on three married women each of whom had an affair with him get out your mopaturgy bingo cards this starred jessica walter and eve plum as mother and daughter Uh the younger wives were gretchen corbett and heather mcrae uh, Gretchen Corbett is the one of those names I didn't recognize, but she still works, and she is best known for The Rockford Files and Magnum P.I. And she's still hungry. She is still hungry. So where our guest star tonight is the wonderful and very talented Mr. James Coco. All right, folks, I'm a little under the weather this week, so God bless an actor with a simple biography. James Coco, born in 1930 in New York, grew up in the Bronx, started acting after high school. Made his Broadway debut in 1957, but his breakthrough role came in an off-Broadway revival of The Moon in the Yellow River in 1961, for which he won his first of three Obie Awards. He made his film debut in 1954's Ensign Pulver, and he had fruitful collaborations with two playwrights in particular, Terrence McNally and Neil Simon. Among his McNally shows were the two-hander Next, opposite Elaine Shore, for which he won the Drama Desk Award, and the original production of It's Only a Play. His work with Neil Simon included a Tony-nominated turn in The Last of the Red Hot Lovers, a revival of Little Me, and the films Murder by Death and Only When I Laugh, which earned Coco nominations for Best Supporting Actor at both the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards and for Worst Supporting Actor at the Razzies. He had a couple of failed attempts at television shows and much greater success as a guest star, including an Emmy-winning appearance on St. Elsewhere. In 1984, he made a memorable cameo in The Muppets Take Manhattan, He's the rich businessman who drops off his dog at the kennel where Rolf is working. And that same year, he released The James Coco Diet, but I'll let Adam talk about that in a minute. People my age might remember him as the recurring character Nick Milano on Who's the Boss? That's Samantha's maternal grandfather. He died of a heart attack exactly one day after his final appearance on Who's the Boss aired in 1987. All right, so as we teased, uh, Adam, during our prep for this decided for some strange reason to order and read the James Coco diet. So tell us about this book, Adam. Oh, let's be clear. I did not read it. It is generous <laughs> to say that I skimmed it, but you purchased it, but I purchased it. I, I, so I am horrified by fad diets, especially of the past, but sort of fascinated by them. And I am fascinated in a funny way by like weird food of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great, like defunct, but it's still there. Like just not no longer updated blog that we'll link to in the show notes. Um, that's all like, like I think there are, are they weight watchers cards um, from, from the seventies that they're just like so gross. So this thing was like $2 used on Amazon and I had some credits. So I, I spent no actual money and, and acquired this book. And actually like I, I was, I was disappointed that it wasn't funny. <laughs> But also pleased. It's basically it's it's like mostly a memoir, actually, of like his, you know, weight loss journey and sort of like shilling for this like very, you know, Southern California sounding like diet center um, that like sounds sort of lovely if, you know, you could afford to like go stay at a spa for a month. Um, except for the fact that it's like extraordinarily calorie restricted. That's basically it's basically just, you know, a diet where you starve yourself is essentially what it is. So, like, it's not great, but it also, like, was not, you know, the horror show that I was expecting, um, at least the parts of it that I read. Uh, I'm sort of flipping through it now, and I'm seeing there's a, a part where he has a dialogue with himself. It, oh, I actually misread that. I just misread Pat as, it says, there's, like, lines for Pat and Jimmy, and I misread it as Fat Jimmy. So, never mind. That's actually fine. So, I don't know. Like, it, it's fine. Um, the recipes are fine. 
Um, they're just very, very, very small, and it sounds awful. Um, but there's a part where he talks about like you know going to film something in France, and he's like, "Yeah, I was in Paris. I wasn't not going to eat." Like so, like now we would call that a cheat day. That you know, so like yeah, it's fine. It was actually sort of boring, but it kind of made me respect him as like not being an insane person. In the screenshot you sent us, he talks about his weight while playing a particular role. And he says, though it was ideal for my character, the excess weight was pure hell for my sweet donkey, Teresa. Yeah, like he had to ride a donkey in a movie. And he talks about that. Like, he's he's charming. I mean, there's a co-author on the book, obviously. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's oh, Structure House is the name of the place. That sounds awful. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's not great, but, you know. Well, I hope his sweet donkey, Teresa, felt better. Uh, you know, yeah, it it's fine. It's it's a it's a seven hundred calorie per day diet, which Ooh, yeah means you're gonna die. <laughs> Basically, like, I mean, it's fully unsustainable, and like, you know, no nobody would had a heart that. attack, like, <laughs> right? Starvation, that's horrible. Yeah, like even you know, Weight, Weight Watchers would not tell you to do that now. Um, so yeah, go listen to Maintenance Phase. Don't do the James Coco diet. If anybody wants a copy of this book, uh, DM me on Twitter. I will happily send it to you for free in the continental United States. But don't do the diet. Anyone else have James Coco thoughts, feelings, memories? He's the first guest star that we've hit so far that un- until I started talking to you guys, I could not have picked him out of a lineup. I had no idea who he was. Wow, you're first. Yeah. When you pointed out that he was in the Muppets of Manhattan, I, I was like, oh, that guy. But um, yeah. I ask my mom, you know, you, every so often we have to ask a boomer. And she's like, oh, yeah, bald guy, big eyes. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I have watched one with Take, Take Manhattan relatively recently. And that still means nothing to me. And I'm sure I've seen every episode of Who's the Boss. Funnily yeah. enough, my my mom didn't remember him in Muppets Take Manhattan until I was like, oh, you know, Snookums, Rubber Wall Street Journal. And she's like, oh, yeah, got it. Yeah. Very funny scene. He's very funny in it. He is. It's my only association with him. River Wall Street Journal. Why don't you get me uh, David, what'd you think of the episode? I don't know. Honestly, like, so uh, we, even though there was a planned time off before this episode hit your podcast feed, we ended up watching the episode and then having to reschedule our recording for a variety of reasons. So I've watched this episode more than we typically watch an episode going into one of our podcasts. And I've just lost all sense of what I think about it. It has some good bits. It has some bad bits. It's, I I really don't want to go first. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, it's, it, it is fine. It feels like sort of, I think this episode feels to me, like a degraded copy of better ideas that we've seen in other episodes. So like he doesn't really seem like he wants to be there, but he doesn't take it in a fun wild place. Like JP Morgan did instead. He just wants to, I don't know, like improve the show, but he seems to be sort of nasty in the way he's doing it while also having bad ideas. So that, that kind of didn't, thrill me and uh, a lot of the individual numbers I thought were bad but some of the sketches were good Uh, so it's sort of a middling episode that uh, will probably wash away from my memory as soon as we're done recording Christy what about you yeah it's fine it's like 87% unremarkable honestly there's a looseness to this episode that kind of felt to me like long form improv, which if it had been improv would have been impressive, but as a scripted thing, I I don't know how I feel about that. You know, there are things that I liked, but overall, yeah, pretty, pretty unmemorable on the whole. Michal. Yeah. Ditto. I've now, because of the aforementioned rescheduling, I've now watched this episode four times and I don't know what I think of it. It's fine. It's a low middle. Yeah, I mean, ditto. I because of the rescheduling, I uh, you know we prepped this episode two weeks ago, and and I just rewatched it like seconds before we started recording, and I've already forgotten it. But it's also I enjoyed it while it was happening, so 
I don't know. Let's get into it. Let's do it. James Coco. James Coco. 15 seconds to curtain, Mr. Coco. Ah, uh, thank you, Scooter. Would you tell Wardrobe that I like this jacket pressed? Sure. Hey, Wardrobe, press that jacket. <laughs> Anything else? No, no. I ain't all. It was just perfect, really. Sucker Blue Invaders! In case you haven't watched the episode, I will tell you James Coco is saying that line from underneath a wardrobe that annihilated him, not quite Beauty and the Beast style, because it just fell instead of leaping on him. But, yep, wardrobe pressed that jacket. During the theme... In lieu of Statler and Waldorf, we have Beauregard rushing directly at the camera and telling us, the viewer, here's your script, which sounds like this is going to be a fun interactive thing. Um, and then he <laughs> slips and falls, which is delightful and very cute. We still have not been formally introduced to him. We will learn his name later, not now, but you know, later in the episode. Yeah, we, we could have inferred it from uh, Doe a Deer a, a few weeks ago. We will I feel hear. like we've talked about learning his name now three episodes in a row, so I think... But he keeps just showing up, and nobody's explained why he's there. But that's what it happened doesn't matter. Yeah. in the 70s. Like, I'm watching Maud right now, and Vivian just shows up in his Maud's best friend seven episodes in with no introduction or explanation. Like, it's just what they do. Yeah, I do think it's fine. But I also, you know, he'll get a scene later. My bigger question is, like, script? Whose script? There's a script? What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, eventually there will be. Fozzie's going to type it up for us in a few weeks. I, I, I just, so, okay. I, I am, I am learning new things about this episode while we're talking, even though it left my brain minutes after I watched it. The juxtaposition of the wardrobe gag, you know, which I like as a play on words and I like in theory and Beauregard's pratfall is part of, I think, what, like the, you mentioned that, that moment in Beauty and the Beast where the wardrobe or a wardrobe, cause I'm not sure it's actually the same one, straight up murder somebody. Uh, <laughs> if you're not familiar with this reference, we will, we will put it in the show notes. He um, was trying to kill the beast. I mean, yes, of course, but I'm just saying it, it's awfully violent. This wardrobe falls so slowly and James Coco looks so comfortable lying underneath it. I'm like, uh, uh, obviously that's fine, but like, it's just, it's not even a very good sight gag. It's all like very slow <laughs> and gentle. And then Beauregard's pratfall because Muppets falling is really funny. And to put those things so close to each other sort of plays up how weak the first one is. And, and that's sort of my problem with a lot of James Coco's comedy in this episode that it's just very blah. Yeah. What I'm hearing is that Adam thought the Muppets should have been more violent towards James Coco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Murderous. Yes. They could have pressed him. He was trying to lose some weight. They could have done a crucible sketch. There's lots of ways they could have gone with this. Man, if he was living on 700 calories a day and then you get flattened by a wardrobe. <laughs> he never would have been able to get up. I don't think he was on the diet at this point in time. Yeah. Anyway, Gonzo tries to blow his trumpet. Uh, four trumpets surround him and interrupt him in harmony, which is lovely. Yeah. All right, let's go backstage. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. Okay, so some assorted backstage business. We're we're going to have an underwater sketch that we'll talk about a little bit later. There's also some backstage aftermath, so let's cover that. Uh, Kermit, not phased by all the water on stage. Yeah, but it's okay. The next act will take care of it. Okay, dancing sponges, you're on! I, I just found that so funny. We didn't need to clip it, really, but it just delights me every time. I'm sad we, d- we don't get to see them in action, though. I was going to say, I love them because they remind me of a more recent puppet act called Vish and Mop, who are German puppet sponges, who I think originated as their own thing and then got uh, a gig on German Sesame Street. Uh, and we'll find some good clips of them to put in the show notes because they they don't really talk so there's no language barrier and they're just a lot of fun cute so Carmen is not phased by all the water on stage he has a solution for that he is a bit phased um by having to help miss piggy unzip her mermaid outfit 
Oh, you were great in that last number, Piggy. Oh, thank you, Kermit. You know, I really like the water. Well, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. Which means after we're married, we can live at your place. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kermit, would you help me take this mermaid outfit off? Oh, can we do the zipper back here? Back there, the zipper. Okay. It's just... Oh! Oh, really? Oh, thank you. Oh, don't look, don't look. Oh, yeah. No picking. There's a cute little exchange where they're they're doing this little playful thing where Kermit like is covering his eyes with a towel. He's also it's very cute when Kermit is vigorously drying himself with a towel. He looks very determined to dry himself. But yeah, this does feel like improv, Christy. <laughs> I think you're right. The something about the pacing of some bits of this episode feels improvised and different. I'm embarrassed by how long it took me to get the we can live at your place <laughs> joke. At his pad. Yeah. He's also wearing this cute little bathing cap. Yeah, to protect his non-hair. Right, he's a frog, but whatever, it's cute. Yeah, it is it is very cute. Later, we will also discuss a sketch requiring no less than the 12-second non-skippable disclaimer informing us that we're going to see some racism and racism is bad. Sam is so offended by this sketch that he decides to finally give up on The Muppet Show. I have spent my last moment in this theater. Oh, that's too bad, Sam. You're going to miss my tribute to Beethoven. I don't care. As long as... Beethoven? Mm -hmm. are, are you serious? Would I joke about Beethoven? He's my idol. See? Oh, Beethoven, at last. Oh, well, for Beethoven, I'll stay. He's my favorite playwright. Yep. This is not the first time they've done a variation on that joke with Sam. Yeah. Sam is a cultured so-and-so. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Also, the bust of Beethoven is um, cute, creepy, both simultaneously. I like it. I like it, too. I, it's a cute concept, well executed. When it starts moving around on the piano, that, that gets a little creepy. But I, I appreciate their craft. Okay, now that we're halfway through the episode, let's get to the actual backstage plot that happens 14 minutes in. James Coco is going to come right out and say it. Kermit <laughs> is terrible at his job. I mean, this show moves. It's got pace, pace, pace. You know what I mean? Pace? You got it. I mean, you only need razzle-dazzle if you've got a dull, slow-moving act, you know? Yeah. But I have been watching this show. It is dynamic. It is full of sex appeal. It is fast-paced. You do not need razzle-dazzle. You have... You've got... What is that? The next act. I love the way he says, what is that, when he sees the Swedish chef. I, I don't think it's James Coco's fault that this episode is oddly paced. No. Or that he seems nasty when he talks about how The Muppet Show needs more sex appeal and dancers and razzle-dazzle. It's just how it's written. It's a strange time, this episode. Uh, so as the latter half of this episode unfolds, James Coco imposes his directorial vision over the last few sketches. Uh, while the Swedish chef is attempting a banana split, there's a real banana and there's an axe. His banana split act is thwarted by a chorus of male pseudo-Spanish dancers. I don't know what genre to call them, but James Coco has sent them parading across the stage. They sort of seem to be flamenco, but I'm pretty sure that the music is Mexican. It's yeah, a like they're confusing. dressed like mariachi. Like they're dressed like Marvin. Maybe they're mariachi, but yeah, it's strange. Anyway, here's the chef. Split. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who hates both bananas and minions, this was very triggering. <laughs> As someone who is only dimly aware of the existence of minions, I only recently learned that bananas are a thing for them. That's kind of the only thing I know about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, James Coco is still not satisfied, so he wants to know what's next. 
What's next? Uh, oh, oh, well, at the uh, Veterinarian's Hospital. Veterinarian's Hospital? Uh, yeah, it's this part where we we tell bad jokes and, uh, and it's death. How dare he? Yeah, rude. <laughs> like, it's one thing for James Coco to say that, but Kermit, it's the best part of the show. Yeah, I... It, it is disconcerting to see Kermit bragging on his own show like this. James Coco sends some dancers to interrupt Vet's hospital. And also, I love that instead of preempting the jokes, the dancers follow the jokes. So it's like they get a dancing musical sting every time they tell a terrible joke. And James Coco is just off stage saying, this is excellent. This is great. Oh, Dr. Bob, he has acute appendicitis. I don't care how cute it is, it has to come out. <laughs> I'd love to be on Broadway. Yeah, I can see your name in lights. Mm. 25 watts. <laughs> oh, 25 watts? That's not very bright. Look who's talking. <laughs> yeah, speaking of rude. And no, we do not have a clip that has the music of the dancers. Uh, yeah, he's like, why is he's unusually mean to her? I don't like that either. Yeah. And unusually womanizing. <laughs> he later says he's decided not to take out the appendix. He intends to take out the, the blonde on the end of the chorus line that's been dancing in front of them. Oh, I thought when he said the blonde on the end, he meant Janice. No. I hope not. I mean, no, I don't know. He definitely meant the, the, the whole thing girl. isn't sitting right. And Piggy agrees with me. Kermit, what's with those showgirls? Uh, well, we just kind of threw them in. Yeah, well, throw them out. I do think it actually works well that they kind of underline all the, the jokes in Veterinarian's Hospital, but it's a bit of a bizarre scenario. It is a little weird. And, you know, time for this week's backstage pedantry. James Coco spends this whole thing, like, flipping switches or something on what I always believe to be an intercom box. And somehow, like, that's making light cues happen. And he's talking to people who are maybe on stage at the time. And I don't know. I hate it. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of switches on that intercom. Yeah, that's true. I just always thought they were, like, to talk to different parts of the theater. That makes sense. Which is a real thing. Anyway, this is all super weird. And I think James Cook was doing more harm than good. You go, James Coco. Shockingly, for an episode with a not especially musical guest star, we have a lot of music to talk about. <laughs> Do it. We start under the sea. Resting our head on the seabed in an octopus's garden near a cave. We would sing and dance around because we know we can't be found. I'd like to be under the sea. Remember when I said that this episode was like 87% unremarkable? This isn't the 13% that is. <laughs> uh, so this is uh, Octopus's Garden by our friends, the failed Skiffle Outfit, the Beatles. Um, it was written by good old Ringo Starr with a little help from George Harrison. If you watch the Get Back documentary that's on Disney Plus, this was apparently the, only the second song that Ringo had ever written. So he kind of needed some help from his friends, so to speak. I really enjoyed that bit. Yeah. <laughs> Where Ringo shows up and he's like, I got this idea. It has like five words and two chords. And George is like, what if it had four chords? <laughs> <laughs> And an additional dozen words. It's very sweet, but at the same time, you're like, oh my god, th these are the most famous musicians in the world. <laughs> what, what's happening? <laughs> and they're all wearing like amazing sweaters and ascots. and It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't watched the Get Back documentary, it's a good thing to have on in the background, too, because it's very, very, very long. It's very long. But it's delightful. 
Um, and yeah, I, I found a, a fun anecdote about the origin of the song on Wikipedia. So apparently it came about when Ringo was on a boat with Peter Sellers in Sardinia in 1968. Um, he'd ordered fish and chips for lunch, but instead of fish, he got squid. And it was the first time he'd ever eaten it. And he said, it was okay. A bit rubbery. Tasted like chicken. Uh, and uh, the boat's captain then proceeded to tell him about how octopuses travel and pick up stones uh, and shiny objects to build gardens. And so he was like, oh, that's a lovely idea for a song. None of that sounds like it could have really happened. Yeah. I mean, or it could only have happened in 1968. Yeah, to Ringo Starr. <laughs> yeah. So our, 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 our singer here, in, in lieu of uh, Ringo Starr, is the controversial nephew of Kermit Robin. <laughs> controversial. <laughs> and his puppet hole. Well, that's the only part of him I thought was controversial. Some of us find him a bit treacly. Yeah, David was stirring shit up on Twitter today as we're recording this. Ah, uh, well. this is not the first time that I have expressed ambivalence about Robin. I think I've been pretty consistent in saying that I find him questionable. This is actually one of my favorite Robin songs as far as Robin appearances go. Yeah, same. I mean, this this was- is delightful. I love this. Yeah, ditto. This this was on one of the VHS compilations that was just songs. So this was my first time seeing this in context. And uh, yeah. It, I mean, good news, of, there isn't it, any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it is so good that longtime listeners will remember, especially during season one, we used to complain when the opening number was totally divorced from the guest star. But this was such like a breath of fresh air that it did not occur to me until just now that this was an opening number that was totally divorced from the guest star. Totally. Also, the puppetry in this is, unlike some that we'll discuss a little bit later, legitimately impressive. Yeah. Like, you know, the like chroma key aside, the like swimming effect that they managed to create with Robin and the school of fish, like in sync, is just mm-hmm. amazing. I mean, we should, yeah. we should talk about the, puppet hole comments we keep making because <laughs> david you should explain that well so i agree that the puppetry is very impressive especially the synchronized swimming but because of the way the chroma key works on many of the fish and unfortunately especially for robin the place where the puppeteer's arm meets the puppet is just very evident and i find that very distracting yeah so the bottom of the robin puppet just looks like the bottom of a glove is just a big circle where the, right. the sock just drops off. Whereas Kermit, when you see him, the chroma key works because I guess he didn't have a, a sock underneath the body of the puppet for that particular puppet. So you're seeing this, it's, he's got a little tummy. They've tapered it in. It makes sense. You see, you're seeing the whole Kermit. It doesn't look like you're seeing the whole Robin. It looks like you, it looks like Robin was once a cylinder that was sawed in half. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, they, they try to hide it with angles but they 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 fail the most on robin um and it's like it's not just that you're like seeing a part of the puppet you're not supposed to see but like you're it's sort of the the way that it stretches like it, it's all kinds of things that you know because the arm disappears in the effect it just looks real weird and there's so much to look at in this clip like th- there are octopuses playing drums. I mean, it, it looks a lot like under the sea in Little Mermaid. It really does. Yeah. There's little lobsters and yeah, a whole, a whole there's rhythm so section. There's so much to see. There's, this is a, a high effort production and still your eye is drawn to Robin's butt. <laughs> I mean, and also if you've seen uh, the Ed Sullivan sketch when, when the Muppets appeared on the Ed Sullivan show and sang Octopus's Garden, also where my brain goes is I kept hoping that there would be an octopus making jokes and there wasn't. It's just Robin singing sweetly. <laughs> so yeah, for me, this was ruined because of this. Yeah. I had never heard this before this Ed Sullivan until you shared it. And it is a delight. Hey, you sing that way on porpoise. <laughs> Below the storm. In our little hideaway beneath the waves. Did you see my haircut? I got scalloped too. On the seabed, in an octopus's garden, he'll Sing louder, I'm part of herring. <laughs> sing and dance around. 
Because we know we can't be found. Oh, sing that tuna with soul. I'd like just such a completely different vibe the arrangement like everything about it in my in my household uh, as a child um abbey road was a children's album though i think that this is the only song that could actually be called a children's song on it but maxwell silverhammer sounds like a children's song yeah, here comes you the sun actually, if you squint if you, yeah 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 um and so i don't i don't actually know if like i heard this song first on the Muppet show um which is true of a lot of classics but like it's like they're fully intertwined like I, I have memories of being a kid and listening to the original and picturing this. Like, this is what this song looks like in my head to this that day. That makes sense. I definitely knew it from the Muppets before I knew it from the Beatles. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't quite realize until I saw it again. Like, cause it wasn't, it's not like a, like the, the image of it in my head isn't like, like Miss Piggy and Kermit, but it's, it's just like a vague memory of this. And then this started playing and I was like, Oh, that's where that came from. <laughs> It's great. It's definitely one on that list of, oh, this wasn't written for them. Uh, that mm-hmm. surprised me uh, over time. Rag mop, you know. No, it was written about Ringo Starr's squid lunch. Who'd have thunk? I do want to talk a little about Kermit's intro of this number. First, we're going to open tonight's show with an underwater fantasy. So without more ado, last one in is a sissy. Like, I understand, like, Last one is a rotten egg. Like this is a thing, but last one is a sissy. Really? That you know, I I sat with this a little bit because it was like that seems like a particularly harsh line to include in an episode with James Coco, who uh, is pretty much acknowledged now was a closeted gay man. Except that then something in the back of my brain was like, oh, I think that's a thing we used to say when we were little. So like, I think that was just sort of like a common schoolyard phrase. And just by the time, by the time that we were a little bit older, that had already fallen out of fashion. So that, like, I really had to kind of dig back into my memory to to remember it. But I think it was a thing. Okay. Yeah i I don't think that it always had the implications that it later had, but still, the oh, I think it's the opposite. Great. I think that it lost the implications that it had. Oh, yeah. I mean, it didn't even it didn't even like strike me that way. It just was like it just seems so weird, especially because they're like fully like under the ocean. It's not like a pool. I don't know. It just seemed very out of place. Yeah. I mean, he's not using it like a slur, but even as I'm trying to analyze it, I'm trying to justify it in my head as like, Oh, well he doesn't mean it's not a slur. He's just saying, well, if you're not in the pool, you're a wimp. Wait, that's not a nice. Like, <laughs> that's there, not any no. better. Like, you even throw if you like said a girl. In, I don't know, man. Egg, it still would have seemed weird to me, but Sissy felt extra weird. I don't oh. know. I'm overthinking it, as I tend to do. But no, you're not wrong. Well, that was different. Did you like it? No. Then it wasn't different. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the disclaimer triggering uh, racist sketch that we will talk about we get a snippet of a song that we will talk about in full in season five, but let's play the clip just because I I find it sort of delightful. Huh? No good. Well, well, just no rhythm, no pace. Not even good looking. So yeah, it's Danny Boy, which uh, the melody is a traditional Irish melody known as Londonderry Air. (laughs) You have to say that very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) No, still got me. London Puppet Hall. And I'm shocked to report that the lyrics were written in the 20th century. They were written by an English songwriter named Frederick Weatherly in 1913. So shout out to the public domain, but still... I would have thought that the words were as old as the tune, but they are not. The more I know. I went looking to see if I could find out why this became the sort of cliched go-to song for sad funereal moments. And I didn't find the answer, but there was a funny note on Wikipedia that I guess the Catholic Church has barred the singing of the song during Mass. Huh. (laughs) Wow. Because it became yeah. so popular during funerals that they were like, not during the mass. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. 
Yeah, I just immediately think of the episode of Schitt's Creek where it becomes a, a running gag. Good times. So now let's hear about Sam the Eagle's favorite playwright. <laughs> All he used were eight little notes, just eight, count them eight like these. He'd mix and match and hatch a batch of catchy melodies. Now I could take two notes and come up with nothing of note. Mr. B took a G and a flattened E and wrote. Wouldn't that fantastic? It's eight little notes. Which was a song cut from the musical Snoopy! Wait, uh, I didn't hear all the exclamation marks. <laughs> Snoopy! Oh, thank you. There you go. So we've talked about Snoopy before. It was a musical based on Peanuts with music by Larry Grossman, who uh, worked on the music staff of the show, and lyrics by Hal Hackety. And yeah, the song was cut from Snoopy. I presume it was a Schroeder song as Schroeder. Like, I fucking hope so. Ralph, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, there's no information about it because it was cut from the show. Like, It was repurposed as a, a Muppet song. But I also want to give a shout out to the Lego Ralph that came out recently because he has the bust of Beethoven with him. Yeah, a very oh. cute little self-satisfied bust of Beethoven. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like avoiding talking about the song. It's eight little notes. It's very cute. Yeah, it's cute. There's there's not a whole lot to say about it, really. Yeah, it's just like, wow, isn't it amazing that Beethoven was able to write the music that he did with the same notes the rest of us have? It, it reminds me of those like horrible motivational posters that are like, you know, Beyonce has the same number of minutes in a day that you have. It's like, yeah, but right. Beyonce also has, you know, millions of dollars and resources. <laughs> Beyonce yeah. doesn't have a day job. <laughs> I disliked this very much. And then I looked it up and was like, oh, it's from Snoopy. Schroeder must have sung it. Okay, it's fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> it just like explains everything. And Aww. I moved on with my day. It does feel a little more Sesame Street than The Muppet Show, right? Like it feels children's education right. well or snoopy and then we're you know then it's fine yeah i think the fact that it's sung by ralph makes it feel less sesame than it could i like the song i have nothing to add i do like the singing bust moment i i do enjoy the bust of beethoven very much any luck no i checked all the doors they got us locked in so our next thing is another thing that we will hear again in season five we we have to to set it up because otherwise it just sounds like vaguely racist music. Um, it's vaguely racist music. <laughs> the setup will help. And under s- some of the worst puppeteering that has ever appeared on this show, it's snakes. They're they're snakes. And if you think they're, about them, they're flailing. They can be very beautiful. Let's hear it. Okay. Okay, Robin. Well, time to go to sleep. But I can't, Uncle Kermit. I- I'm afraid of snakes. Snakes. Uh, snakes. Uh, uh, well, uh, well, uh, there, there, there aren't any snakes around here. Unless they're under the bed. No, 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 no snakes under the bed. Well, this really isn't helping, Uncle Kermit. That was cut from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Christy, what piece of music are we listening to those snakes dance to? I'm so glad you asked me, Hall. This is uh, In a Persian Market, which is a piece of light classical music for orchestra and optional chorus. And I'm dying to know what the chorus was saying. Wow. Uh, (laughs) They're just singing la la la's. For for everyone's sake, I hope so. Uh, there are gonna... lyrics because I found Sammy Davis Jr.'s cover of it. Really? Oh. Well, that'll be on the show page. All right, we, I, I will have to investigate this later. Yeah, so this was in the 1920. Shout out to the public domain by Albert Catelby, who was Britain's first millionaire composer. He wrote a lot of these pieces that were sort of orchestral choral pieces that were supposed to evoke 
quote unquote exotic locales. There was one called in a monastery garden. There's in a Persian market, which was this uh, in a Chinese temple garden and in the mystic land of Egypt. Those all sound like this, don't they? Uh, I, I would guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I have an addendum. Sorry. The lyrics that Sammy Davis Jr. sang to this tune were written in the sixties by Hal David. Oh, okay. Well, somehow right. that's worse. <laughs> yeah. And he apparently was the third grofe of Britain because uh, he had a piece called Cockney Sweet. <laughs> and it was very popular. And yeah, a lot of it was best selling during his career, but his popularity declined during the Second World War. And in 1949, he moved to the Isle of Wight and he died there in obscurity. So sad for Alas. old Albert. Well, yeah. So this is just fun all around. <laughs> this song did appear to have a minor resurgence in the like late 50s, early 60s. In addition to Sammy Davis Jr., I found covers by Billy May, who is sort of like a, a late big band swing uh, arranger, and also by Esquivel, who is uh, one of those like space age music instrumentalists. So uh, people had fun with this. Glad someone did. I think the song is not bad. The 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 dancing snake. Yeah, thing. I mean the song is fine, and I appreciate this. I mean this it's cheesy, but like this, you know, seventies rocky. And the snakes are having fun of it. I'm glad someone is. Yeah, but the puppetry is so bad. Like they're just, just being lazy. like flung around. Like, they're being what? flung around. They keep like overlapping each other. I can't tell. So it's, it's, I don't think it's chroma key. I think they're just black on black. Um, but like, I don't know if we're supposed to be like looking down on the snakes on the ground or if they're like flying somehow, but that's fine. But it's the fact Robin's that they're dream. Like, they're but, like swimming through each other and some of them are like translucent some of the time. Like I assumed it was chroma oh, key. Oh yeah, there is the, you're right. There is some chroma key because some of them are translucent. Yeah. And like, and they keep yeah. like whacking into each other, which does not look deliberate because they're doing like these sort of swirly things. It just is like, they're just like floppy and it's it's both dull and it looks sloppy. And sorry, I'm like sort of ranting. Like, I love <laughs> when they do you? stuff like this. <laughs> Pot, kettle. I <laughs> love when they do stuff like this. Like, I want them to do stuff like this. I want all the styles of puppetry imaginable. I want, like, I want weird stuff. I want, I want non-Muppety Muppets. I want it all. I just want it to look good. <laughs> And this yeah, is and not considering, good. yeah, that earlier this episode in their opening number, they did beautiful chroma key work. Right. They just ran out of time and money or something. Like this feels very thrown together at the last minute. It was this a UK spot? Yes, yes, I'm almost certain. Yeah it it does feel like it was thrown together in a rush, and the Except- Robin in the bedroom doesn't quite make sense. But Carmen and Robin in the Bedroom is a fairly elaborate set for something thrown together in a rush. It is. But it's also like made out of stock parts. Like that set is just, it's like it's a wall and a window and a bed. And but somebody like, those built are all that things bed. That they, yeah, but it's, I'm sure it's a bed that they either use before or will use again. Like, yeah. It's just but the bed. set is also dressed like it looks like some weird grandma's room. I'm not sure where they're supposed to be. Is that Kermit's house? Is it Robin's house? Do Robin and Kermit live together? Yeah. I don't know. Those are all fair questions, but I'm also confident those are all pieces that have that were in stock. Like it's Robin not... just appreciates a cottagecore aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, there is a you heard in that clip where Kermit does like a mock. Oh no, are they under the bed and like checks? And that is a delightful bit of puppetry. Yeah, because his legs go up yeah, in the air feet and feet shoot up. Yeah, there'll be a gif of that in the show notes. I mean, the, I think the joke with the chroma key bit is that we're, we're supposed to assume that while they're dancing and swimming around, it's intricate and beautiful. And then at the end, they do this laughing thing because it's supposed to look like they've t- tied themselves into knots over the course of their dance. I, th- I think that there's supposed to be a joke there. Okay. I didn't catch it. and I, No. I also watched this like four times. Speaking of not catching things. Catch a falling star and put it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. For love may come and tap you on the shoulder. Hey, your pants are on fire. One star, let them... 
So this is Catch a Falling Star, which was a song written by Paul Vance and Lee Pockris that was made famous, in fact, made a very big hit by Perry Como in 1957. It was Perry Como's last number one. It reached number one on Billboard's Most Played by Jockeys chart, but not the overall top 100 where it reached number three. But uh, here's a fun bit of trivia. It was the first single to be certified gold by the RAAA huh. in 1958. My, I want to say, elementary school chorus sang the song. Our version did not meet number one. <laughs> that's tragic. Yeah, it's a song that's weirdly sung by children a lot. My, my main association with the song is there's a, a weird Christmas pageant near the end of Love Actually where a bunch of children are singing it and it's like the standard Christmas pageant, Mary, Joseph, etc. But there's also like a kid dressed as a lobster. Yeah. Uh, also, I did not know until I started doing research for this episode, Perry Como's full name was Pierino Ronald Como. Well, sure. Can't win them all. Pierino, go away. No. Can we just talk about the sexual tension between Scooter and Wayne here? <laughs> he does say love will come and tap you on the shoulder. And, and then-, then Scooter taps him on the shoulder. <laughs> it's great. And says his pants are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> All this is true. All of this is text, not even subtext. No, not even a little bit subtext. I mean, he also has been catching stars and putting them into his literal pants. <laughs> I don't know. If we're going to do Wayne bits, I miss Wanda. Well, he doesn't, apparently. Well, I mean, <laughs> obviously. Uh, <laughs> He's already found love with Uncle Deadly. I don't know. He's got a lot going on in this theater. I think it's more that I miss Aaron Oscar more than anything. Yeah. Yes. Wanda's off with Annie Sue. Everybody's fine. Everybody's having a great time. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this was, as you heard in the clip, uh, interrupted briefly by There's No Business Like Show Business, which we've talked about before. It was in the Ethel Marmot episode, and it'll be heard again next season. Oh, so we should talk about the clown that comes to put out the fire. It, well, it's a pig clown. We've seen this pig clown before, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah the cabaret pig. We did not uh, care pig. for it. Yeah, still don't care for it. This time he puts out the fire with like a squirty seltzer bottle. Um, and for those who didn't catch the reference, that, uh, although these days I think Clowns with Seltzer is sort of a trope that was popularized by Clarabelle the Clown, who was the clown on the Howdy Doody show, who was originally played by Bob Keeshan, who would go on to be Captain Kangaroo. And of course, like in the great chain of children's television, Howdy Doody to Captain Kangaroo to Sesame Street is a pretty direct line. So uh, I thought that was a neat little tribute. Nifty. All right. Our closing number comes up a little short. <laughs> short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. They got little hands and little eyes and they go around telling great big lies. They got little noses and tiny little teeth. They wear platform shoes on their tiny little feet. Well, I don't want no short people. I don't want no short people. I don't want no short people out here. It's short people which is a, a, a song uh, that was uh, written and originally performed by uh, Adam's favorite, uh, Randy Newman, <laughs> in uh, 1977 on an album called Little Criminals. It peaked at number two on the Hot 100. It, uh, apparently, Baffling. Yeah, it, it's not a song that I feel like makes sense on the radio, and yet it, it made it there somehow. It doesn't make um, sense Well, the 70s, nothing made sense. I mean, fair. But just like, why is this song... Randy Newman wrote a lot of sort of winking political commentary type songs. And this was his way of trying to do social commentary parody about racism. But yeah, I had to look that up to understand that too. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, like novelty songs, you know, still can chart, but even so. Yeah. Anyway, I sorry, mean, Christy, please yeah. continue. Yeah. Yeah. It, w- it was kept out of the number one spot by baby come back by player. Another banger. Yes. And uh, Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Heard of it. Quite famously a banger. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, We're going to hear of it again real soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, most notably, went to number one on Cashbox, baby. <laughs> I got excited about that. Uh, <laughs> funny, funny story about this song. Uh, in 1978, a delegate in the Maryland state government uh, named Isaiah Dixon attempted to introduce a law making it illegal to play short people on the radio in oh Maryland. <laughs> or at least during mass. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the Catholic Church would be too happy about that uh, being sung in mass either. We we should see if they've made it. Oh, I think Catholic speech. sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was uh, advised by the Maryland Attorney General that it would be a violation of the First Amendment, so he dropped it. Wow. So this performance is James Coco. We finally get to hear him sing. Uh, and I don't think he's a bad singer. I don't think he's a good yeah, singer. He does okay. But you I mean, know, he went I, on to lead a Broadway musical. So he yeah, clearly- I I was delighted to hear that because I I think a, a show like Little Me is perfect for somebody like him. The musical comedy, like like old school musical comedy, is uh, something that I think was probably in his wheelhouse. But the thing that I love most about this is that he's backed up by a band of short Muppets that includes Manamana and Droop, 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 Droop Unite, and uh, Shaky Sanchez. Yes, a bunch of our season one faves are back. Yeah, Droop was so obscured by all the other short Muppets that you, I missed him the first couple times. I also feel like they made his eyebrows even bigger. They did something to Menomina's eyebrows. Yeah, maybe. I just feel like his face was so obscured. But once once he was noticed. And there's also the, these um, three backup singers uh, who are real weird looking. And then they do this very, very 70s split screen at one point that, that was very strange and unnecessary with the backup singers. I enjoyed the backup singers. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I didn't mind them. It just was like there was a lot happening with those, you know a lot of 70s-ness happening because like on one mm-hmm. side of the stage are all these familiar Muppets in the band and then on the other side of the stage are these three new characters who are like the most 70s that ever 70s. And in the middle of it is James Coco, James Coco. telling us that short people should die. <laughs> so James Coco, by the way, only 5'10". Which is not, which is average. It's not right, particularly it's not, short. It's not like he's a tall guy. Sure. I sure. assumed he was shorter just based on the subject matter. I so I I am on record as not liking Randy Newman. I don't particularly like the song, especially when Randy Newman sings it. I found this delightful, <laughs> like shockingly so. I just it so it's shot at mostly at an angle, like at a low. Would this be a low angle or a high angle? It's shot from below, <laughs> so that the so that James Coco looks extra tall, and the Muppets who are already quite small like look. And the Muppets are like at ground level, which is not how you normally see them with a human. Yeah, so that they, they look really much smaller seem here. very short. He's having a blast. I don't know. I thought it was real cute. Someone yeah, if I didn't me. understand English, I would have enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It didn't bother me. I get it. Like, I get why it does. But I thought it was weird that none of the short Muppets in this number were offended by the number. It is cute that during the outro of the show, uh, James Coco is worried that he might have offended short people. And then I don't know whether to continue to find this offensive, but I found it very cute that instead you see a bunch of tiny flags waving at the bottom of the screen as though there are very tiny Muppets cheering because <laughs> they enjoy the number and then they carry Kermit away. And that tickled me. There is a sense, at, like this might just be projection, but actually... I don't think it is because like Droop and Shaky Sanchez in particular are are naturally unhappy looking Muppets. Like there They're is a, a a shot where they pan across the band and like they don't look like they want to be there. And then at one point, James Coco picks Shaky Sanchez up by the nose and then drops him. So I did kind of get the vibe that like maybe the band is there against their will. Though the backup singers seem quite happy and they're also short. So, yeah, hard that, to tell. That read doesn't really hold water, but uh, I don't know. James Coco's having a good time, at least. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? All right, friends. We're not going to be able to get out of here until we have discussed the sketch that triggered the the twelve second warning 
uh, in the sketch, Fozzie says that he's he's never been to see a real Roma clairvoyant before, except he doesn't say Roma, he says the other thing. And uh, that clairvoyant turns out to be James Coco. James Coco is going to consult his crystal ball. This turns out to be inhabited by Beauregard, who doesn't really know what he's doing there. And then they're all unexpectedly visited by a real ghost, or at least a, a real Muppet ghost, who leads them all in a rousing chorus of Danny Boy. So it's a comedy sketch. I mean, it concludes with a song, but it's, they're fine. They're doing fine. They're doing some cute jokes, but it all just feels strange and draggy. And whatever style of comedy they're doing doesn't suit the Muppets, even though you'd think that it would. I've got to know one thing. Yes, I can. Can you predict the future? I just did. That's it. That's all I clipped because it's just not that funny. I mean, they're, but they're I like doing joke. jokes that are perfectly fine. And yet. Yeah, I will say we keep calling the sketch racist and I really think it's it's mostly the use of the word and like the costume. Like he's not doing an accent. He does I mean, a not couple of defending. accents briefly. Well, that that is true. But compared to the Peter Sellers, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the number this is is much less terrible. Yeah, like it's yeah. the con- it's the concept, it's the word, it's the costume. But then it all sort of gets dropped, and he's basically just James Coco, which I appreciated as as these things go. Yeah, it's it's certainly not nearly as offensive as the Peter Sellers bit, but I get why they had to put the warning on it. Yeah. Oh, totally. I also wonder if, like, where we talked about, like, there being a threshold. I wonder if the the culturally ambiguous dancers later sort of like added another point. I don't know. Yeah, if this was seven and a half points and they were the other two point five. Yeah. I just, I thought this was better than some of their earlier attempts. I just don't get why this is so consistently hard for them, and it feels like they should, like, either only cast singers or or people who are willing to sing, or or something. Like, I just. Like we know that Jerry Jewell can write a funny script, and we know that the Muppet performers can can deliver a funny script, and also can improv really well. So I don't understand why sketches are so consistently not good, especially because Sesame Street is so chock full of hilarious now classic comedy sketches. Mm-hmm. And granted, it's different writers, but uh, you know, at least at this point, at least one of the writers had come over from Sesame Street. So I don't even know what the excuse is. And they do Muppet-only sketches that are very funny. Like, right, Vets Hospital and Pigs in Space are great. So, mm-hmm. I don't get it. Is Pigs in Space great? Well, it's, it, will be, it will be great. So maybe we're just <laughs> getting there. But then when you throw a guest star in, something sets the writers off that they think they have to do something different. I don't know. I would like to posit that there is a better idea for a sketch hidden in this sketch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... The ghost that they accidentally summon is this like southern grandpa ghost who says that he was actually supposed to turn up at the seance of the senior citizens in Abilene. I I think that could be very funny. <laughs> like like <laughs> I mean, well also potentially offensive, but like, you know, like a, a hillbilly seance like <laughs> Like the chug band seance? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, That'd be something. I found the ghost himself kind of funny. The ghost Chester, is funny. and there's Chester like, Pew it was his name. Fozzie and James Coco together was like almost there for me. Yeah. In a way that Fozzie and Kermit together were not, right? Like I, I, I want more of them. Mm-hmm. But it just, as a sketch, it didn't land. I, I think it fell apart when it, they were like, ah, it's just a show. I'm not actually a medium, you know, like I, I wanted it to be like, Oh no, I'm, I'm a medium. And then like the ghost that they summoned was, they got their wires crossed. It was, they just didn't want to commit to it. And I think it's partially because they knew that the, <laughs> the caricature was racist. Yeah. I mean, it is fun when James Coco kind of flips from from being the fortune teller into being maybe not James Coco exactly, but the James Coco character that we'll see later in the episode. Sure. Later in the episode, he'll talk about how we need pace and we need dancers. And here he's just evaluating the ghost. <laughs> no rhythm, no pace, not even good looking. 
it's it's fun to see a little bit of that. Not saying this works. Right. I wonder too if this is a problem of Beauregard being such a big part of it, but we don't really know who he is yet, so we don't really understand what his relationship is to anyone else or why he's reacting the way he is. I think that it's more that they're just all on screen for three minutes doing jokes and nothing else. Yeah. I mean, in the, so I have, I have watched ahead in case that wasn't clear in the air order, the episode. Oh, that's interesting. Actually the episode where we really meet Beauregard is the season was the season premiere, at least in the States. Huh. Uh, And had already aired in the UK at this point. Uh, in fact, one week earlier. So while it may not have been deliberate, as we have learned from other characters like Annie Sue, Beauregard, at least at this point, to audiences would have been established as a very stupid person. So at least he is maybe, you know, makes a little more sense in the, in context. Yeah. I don't think that necessarily makes him funny in the sketch, but at least he might have been understood. He's doing his best. They all are. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare and it certainly wasn't well done. (laughs) I hate that we're like ending on a bummer sketch. Well, we've been talking about Robin's bum this whole time, so it's only fair. Well, shall we leave? Why should we leave now? The worst part's over. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Next week, get ready for some cheap jokes at the expense of the Helen Ready episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levin. conversation naturally flowed from cephalopod to cephalopod <laughs> who among us is <laughs> <laughs> not taking our puppet hole from cephalopod to cephalopod <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it goes sometimes. so yeah